It is uh, so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. Um, if you have your Bible, says go ahead, um, turn to Genesis as we continue our series through the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, um, verses 18 to 25. And so hopefully, God willing, we can wrap up um, chapter 2 this, uh, this, this morning. Um, let me pray for us as we get ready to read God's word and hear what God says about us. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not just made yourself known uh, through creation and through your Son, but also through your word. Lord, and as we come to you to hear from you, Lord, can you give us ears to listen? Can you give us eyes to see? Can you give us a mind to understand? And can you give us hearts that can be molded? Can you remove our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh? Can your spirit pierce our hearts and convict us of sin and encourage us in righteousness? And Lord, as we talk about something that is highly controversial in our culture, Lord, help us to see this message not for others outside the church, but that this message is for us inside the church. And Lord, can you make yourself known? Can you help me and clearly articulate your word? Can you help me to present your word um, with clarity and humility? And Lord, can you help me to faithfully point people to you, Lord Jesus? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week... um, in chapter 2, we kind of looked at a narrow focus, kind of a, a close-up picture um, of the creation account. So when, when you look at Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 is kind of like a panoramic view uh, of creation, and Genesis chapter 2 is now more of a narrow focus of creation. And really what Genesis chapter 2 really focuses on is God's special creation, namely the forming of man, the provision for man, the commission for man, and the command of man. And so last week where we said if you really look at all of those things of God, God is central to all of these activities and all of these activities, what we really learn about God is that God is deeply personal. And so today as we wrap up chapter 2, we continue to take a close look at this picture of creation, this close-up picture of God's provision for man. And really, and you, if you look at this provision for man, we continue to see how God is central in all of these activities, how God initiates everything. And so real quick, if you look at the text, look at how God initiates everything in the provision for man. In verse 18, it starts off with saying, the Lord God said... Verse 19, it says the Lord God had formed. Verse 21, it shows us the Lord God caused a deep sleep. And in verse 22, it says the Lord God made dot, 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 a woman. And so the reason why I'm drawing your attention to God initiating all of these things and being central to all of these things is to show you that God provided for man and what he provided for man is really special. And so in our text today, we're going to look at the account of woman's creation that really demonstrate that God is the one who established the woman. 
And, and so normally what we do is as we go through the text, I kind of give you the fill in the blanks. But what I'm going to do is right now I'm going to give you all the main points. And what I want you to do is as we're going through the text, you'll see how it's broken up in the back of your bulletin. There's a main point space, main point space. You can fill in the main points and then just fill in the gaps in the spaces as I'm trying to point you throughout the text. But, but four things we're going to learn and we're going to talk about that God establishes. The first thing is, if you're taking notes, God is the one who establishes the value of women. He's the one who established it. God is the one who established the role distinction of women. God is the one who establishes the role distinction of women. The third one is God is the one who establishes the uniqueness of women. And then the last one is God is the one who establishes the relationship between the man and the woman. So in other words, it's not me establishing it. It's not me saying these things. It is God who establishes these things. He is the one who established the value of women. He is the one who established the unique role of women and the uniqueness of women and the relationship between the man and the woman. And really, um, what we're going to talk about before we get into the text, when you look at Genesis chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3 as a whole, really Genesis 1 and 3 provides the foundation, what we as Christians understand as biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, which if you're going to notice in chapter 3, biblical manhood and womanhood is distorted. It's distorted, it's misunderstood, it's misrepresented because of sin. And the result of sin is gender confusion. And let me tell you now, gender confusion did not start in the 21st century. It started in the book of Genesis. Because what we're going to see is the result of gender confusion that started in Genesis is we become confused about the value of both men and women. We're confused about the role of men and women. We're confused of what makes man a man and a woman a woman. And we're confused about the very purpose and meaning of marriage. And it did not start in the 21st century. It started in Genesis, and we're going to see this happen, especially in chapter 3. And so I need to be really cautious here. And here's my focus as we're going through this passage, and we kind of talk about gender confusion. My focus is to show you that God is the one that is establishing these things, not me. Like, this is not my opinion. This is me simply reading the word to you and showing you how God has established these things, okay? Everybody understands that? So don't say, I disagree with you. You can say you disagree with God. That's between you and God, okay? I know that's a very bold statement, but I'm going to show you, okay? (laughs) And the second one is this. This message is for you. It's not for, it's not a uh, ammunition to load your gun to attack your neighbor who has a different view on gender. It's not for the non-Christian outside of the church. It is for you inside the church. Because as much as there is gender confusion outside of the church, there is gender confusion inside the church as well. And that is what I might, my, the Lord has a, a, a made me your pastor, and my job as your pastor is to shepherd you, is to teach you, to disciple you, and to show you through Scripture what God says about a godly man and a godly woman, and how that impacts our lives. So everybody understands that? Uh, let me get myself in a lot of trouble. Verse 18 says this. 
Chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So let's just stop here. So if you think about what happened in the previous verses, in the beginning of chapter 2, we find out that God had made man. He formed him from the dust of the ground. He breathed life into him. In other words, he gave him a kiss. He planted this beautiful garden in Eden, and he gives him a great responsibility to work the ground, to cultivate it, to be a steward of this garden in Eden. Now, if you think about it, life, provision, beautiful environment, a wonderful responsibility, that seems like the ideal setting for most men. And yet, what does the Bible tell us? God declares, not man, God is the one who said, more needs to be done to achieve this ideal. So, so what, what is God's concern here? God's concern is that man is alone. And what does God declare? He declares that it is not good for man to be alone. Now, whether Adam felt this loneliness is unknown. We really don't know. But what is very clear is God is declaring that it's not good for man to be alone. In other words, when God is declaring that it's not good for man to be alone, that meant God created man to live in community, not just only with God, but also with someone that is like him, with other human beings, which means isolation is not good. Community is. And it's only through community, this, this common union between man and woman that we're going to read about, is only through this common union will they be able to reign over creation. Will they be able to achieve the blessing that God has given them, namely through procreation. Remember chapter 1, God blessed procreation. And it's only through this common union between man and woman that they will be able to achieve their destiny. So God looks at man, he sees the problem of man, and he declares that it's not good for man to be alone. And then God said, not man, but God said, what is he going to do? I will make a helper corresponding to him. So now remember how I gave you the main points? Now you're going to start filling in these kind of main points. Because I do think this verse kind of heightens the value of, of women. How does it heighten the value of women? Let me quickly show you. Because God personally made women to be the solution to man's problems. God declares, no, I'm being serious. Like, I'm not being, don't, don't chuckle at that. God said, here's the problem. I'm going to make a solution. What's man's problem? He's alone. I'm going to create the solution. And then the second one, how is God declares that the woman is a suitable, and some of your translation says corresponding, God is the one who declares that a woman is a suitable helper. Not man. Man is not saying this is a suitable helper. God is the one who says these things. 
So that heightens the value of women. This verse also indicates the functional difference that exists between the man and the woman. Because the woman is called man's helper, not vice versa. The role, and, and now it's easy for us to say, oh, the woman is only a helper, and now we look at the, the idea of helper as something inferior. No, that word helper does not mean inferior because actually that word at times has been designated as God's role. Especially when God delivered his people from the enemies, it was designed as God helping his people. So the idea of being a helper is not an inferior position. It's not like an inferior role that does not exist. But it does show us there is clearly a role distinction between the man and the woman. And we'll talk more about this. And this role of helper also indicates that the woman is going to play an important part in ruling over creation. For the woman will make it possible for man to achieve the blessing, namely procreation, otherwise could not have been achieved. And the woman cannot achieve this blessing by herself, which means both of them are needed. And I also find it interesting in the next verse, uh, not the next chapter, in chapter 3, we're going to find out how the woman is instrumental in providing for salvation through her seed, through her offspring that will crush the serpent. So right off the bat in one verse, we see the heightened value of women. God declares the solution to man's problem. God declares the woman to be a suitable helper for man, and yet we still see a little bit of a role distinction between the man and the woman. And as we continue to read the text, we're now going to look at the uniqueness of the woman and the singular relationship that exists between the man and the woman. Let's look at verse 19 here. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. Now, one of the first observations we need to make is this, and it's important, and you're going to see in a little bit why it's so important. The very first thing we, is mentioned in verse 19 is notice that both man and animal was formed by God using the same substance. And what is the substance? The ground or the dust. Again, that's going to be, uh, that information is important information to show us the uniqueness of women. But also notice the second thing. Notice that the animals and the birds are all paraded before the man by God for the man to name the animal. And by man naming the animal, what is he doing? He is kind of exercising his authority over them. And by all the animals parading before him and he names them, the man could observe for himself there was none among the creatures who would match him in kind. And the conclusion that the man is also coming to is among all the living creatures, there's no human match. There's no suitable helper that will fulfill the role in helping me take dominion over creation. Now, I promise myself I'm not going to get on a rabbit trail, but I have to say this one thing. 
You know where gender confusion also started? Is when we start elevating animals to that of humans. Here's a famous saying that we all know. Who is, uh, Jeopardy question, who is man's best friend? Who is dog? Sorry. (laughs) You Jeopardy nerds. Just think about the demonicness of that truth. I know you love your dog, and they're sweet, but there is something wrong when we elevate an animal above that of a human. Because what does God say? Who's man's best friend? Woman. All right, I'm going to stop there before I get myself in further trouble. So the conclusion is that man is looking for a human match. No animal could fulfill that role, which means that a woman is distinguished from the animals. She's elevated above the animals because only she can fulfill that role, which means the fact that the man is expressing his rule over the animal world and searching for an appropriate helper caused him to realize his inadequacies to the task if he continues in this condition of being alone. In other words, he did not need woman's help to name the animals. He could do that by himself. But he realizes for him to continue to exercise authority over the animals, he is going to need help. And he cannot ask Buddy to be his helper because Buddy was never meant to be his helper. That's Buddy the dog, by the way. And so he recognizes that he needs a helper that would be suitable for him, corresponding to him, that would help him to accomplish this role of ruling over creation. And in this way, God is preparing man to value the very helper of woman. And now we're also going to see the uniqueness of women. Look, look at verse 21. Now remember, sorry, before we read this, Remember the very first observation we made? A man and, and animals are made from the same substance, right? From ground. Look at what substance woman is made out of. Look at Now God is going to tell us how women is made. Look at verse 21. And again, look at who initiates this thing. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to come over man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs, closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. So let's stop here. What's the very first thing that God does? He causes man to fall into a deep sleep. Okay? So in other words, man is not a spectator observing what God is doing, but in a sense, he's a participator. He's sleeping. And the sleeping really preserves uh, for the man the mystery of the creation of women and the surprise of her appearance. In other words, he has no idea what's going on. God causes man to sleep. What's the second thing that God does in the creation of woman? The Lord surgically removes one of his ribs. You see this? Both man and animal are made of what? Ground, dust. But the woman is made of what? The rib. She is the 
the only creation that has been created that came from a living being. No other creation. Which that shows us how unique the woman is. It shows us she's unique and she has value because God took, made us from the ground, but for the woman, he used a living being and formed him. Now, for some of us, we're like, well, what's the significance of the rib? Real, real quick here, and we're not going to get too deep into this. First, the significance of the rib is this. The woman was taken from the man's side to show that she is of the same substance. She's made of the same substance. She comes, basically, she comes from the same stuff. Because when Adam looks at woman, he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Basically, what he's saying is, oh, wow, she's made of the same stuff as I. And so by coming from the rib, coming from the side, she's made of the same substance. The second significance of the rib, it demonstrates certainly the unity between the man and the woman. It also demonstrates to the man and the woman that they're fit for one another as companions. But it also demonstrates the discontinuity that distinguishes the man from the woman. The man sources from the ground and the woman is from the man. The Lord takes his special creation, the woman, and he presents it to the man as a special gift. And this gift was so special, which shows us how unique women is, that this is the very time was actually recorded that man is speaking. So in other words, there's no recording of man speaking before. When he named the animals, we don't hear from him. We're just told that he named the animals. And I know a lot of us would love to have heard him name the animals. And why did he name the animals? That's not given to us. But when the special gift was given to him, this gift was so, so special, so precious, that it was recorded what comes out of his mouth. And he breaks into a poetic form. And this is what he says in, in verse 23. And man said, this one is last, is bone of my, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. When he says bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, really what he's exclaiming is we are made of the same stuff. And by naming her, he's highlighting their attachment. Now, as man is declaring to the woman that we are one and the same, we must understand, and I think this is where gender confusion comes in, we must understand that sameness does not mean exactness. For clearly, we've already established in the text that men and women are different, even though they're made up of the same stuff. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Clearly, there's a distinction. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 23, God made them male and female. So in other words, sexually, they are, are different. And if they're different, that also means they have different roles in procreation. We kind of talked about it last week or two weeks ago. 
Another thing we, we, we see how clearly men and women are different, um, in Genesis chapter 2 all the way through chapter 3, there's a role relationship that exists between man and woman, between leader and follower. And, and I think Genesis chapter 2 verse 3 shows this, this structure directly and implicitly. Implicitly, there's the structure of hierarchy, okay? Here's the hierarchy of creation. You have God, you have man, you have women, and then you have animals. God is the one who established that hierarchy. And really what we see in chapter 3, that hierarchy, it gets reversed. At the fall, you have... The serpent talking to the woman. In other words, the woman is listening to the serpent. The man is listening to the woman. And no one is listening to God. And when God executes his judgment and saying, here's the consequences for rebelling against me, God, basically what God is doing, he puts that order back in place. The animal will be subject to the woman. The woman will be subject to the man. And everyone will be subject to, to God. Again, this is not me saying this. This is what God is establishing. You're like, I just don't see that. That's implicit. Okay, I'll give that to you. But then look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It makes it clear that woman is designated as man's helper. Not man designated as the woman's helper. Also, we've already mentioned that the man named the animals without the assistance of the woman which means he expressed his dominion over the lower orders of creation, but he cannot complete the task of subduing it and achieving the blessing of procreation without the woman. The New Testament authors would pick up this idea in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, which suggests the role of the man being the leader and the woman being the follower and the helper. And that's what Paul says if you want to write down the reference, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8 to 10. And Paul mentions to us, For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was a man created for the sake of women, but women for the sake of man. The fact that the woman came from the man, which itself is so impressive that the man would exclaim, bone of my bone, indicates that these two are inherently the same in nature, and yet they're distinctive in their personal and interrelationship and in their roles. And this is what we have to understand. And and this is what I've been trying to do in the text. Are women valuable? Yes, why? Because God declared it. God said it. God designated them as the title of helper. God made them so special and so unique, unlike any other creation. God designated them as being image bearers, made in his likeness, just like man is. Is man valuable? Yes, he is. There's a sense of sameness where both of us are made in the image and the likeness of God. Both of us have been given the creation mandate of to be fruitful, to multiply, to rule and subdue the creation order. Like that is our sameness. And yet there is a distinction between us, not just in our sexuality, but also in our roles and what that looks like. 
And this is what we have to understand. And the second you start reversing it, let's play around with the rule part. You know when there's rule confusion? Because there, now there's, a, there's this confusion of what makes a man a man and what makes a woman a woman. You can fill in the blank what happens after that. So after, let's, let's move on before we do application. We're almost done. So after the creation of the first couple, now God establishes this relationship that will exist between this couple, namely marriage. So, so let's look at verse 24, and then we're 24, 25, and then we're done. It says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. So in other words, what we see is here, marriage and family is the a divine ideal for carrying out this mandate of procreation to rule over creation. It is this relationship that God himself establishes between a man and a woman. Now, if you're a really critical person, you're going to notice verse 24 is not in quotation marks, so you can easily say, wow, that's not God's word directly. That is the commentator's work of he's just assuming that, so nowhere does God say it. But do you guys remember two weeks ago? I think his name is Jesus. He is the son of God. And what does he do? He takes this verse in his teaching of marriage and divorce, and he says, haven't you read? And he quotes this verse. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. So in other words, if Jesus is God and if Jesus quotes it, that means Jesus said it, which means God is the one who instituted this idea, this paradigm of marriage and marital behavior. Now, real quick, because we need to get to application here. The model of marriage involves three factors, okay? In the text, three factors. Two explicit, one implied. The first factor is leaving. The second one, some of your translation, is cleaving or uniting. And the third one is a public declaration. So you have a leaving, you have a uniting, and you have a public declaration. So real quick with the leaving. So marriage is depicted as a covenant relationship shared between one man, one woman. And the significance of this language to leave is that marriage involves this new pledge to a spouse in which the former familial commitments are suspended. Marriage requires a new priority by the marital partners where obligations to one's spouses supplants a person's parental loyalty. So in other words, like no longer are you loyal to your parents because you have established a new relationship that now takes a new importance in your life. You have to leave in order to unite. Now, I think the leaving does not necessarily have to be taken literally, but certainly it has to be taken symbolically because technically in the ancient Eastern world, it was the woman who left her father's house to live with her new husband with his father's family. But even as there there was the leaving, the man, the husband, still had to make a decision what's best for him and his wife even if it's in conflict with his father and his father's family, because a new family has been formed. 
So it's not saying, see, we can't have relationships with you anymore. It's saying, no, that relationship now is different. There's a new priority that takes precedence over that other relationship. And I know for some of you mamas and papas, it's heartbreaking. After the uniting, what happens? After, oh, sorry, after the leaving, then there's the, the uniting, in a sense, the, the cleaving. The husband and wife now are bound by certain conditions, forming a new entity, a new relationship. The two people, although they're freed from their parents, are not living in as isolated, independent men and women, but now they become dependent and responsible towards one another. Think about this, the, this marriage language of one flesh communicates the very same idea what Adam said in verse 23. Here is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And what it does is it kind of depicts the consequences, this result of this union, this physical union, this sexual union that God has ordained between a man and a woman. There's a leaving, there's a uniting, and the third one is not explicitly in the text, but it's certainly implied as a public declaration. You're like, how do you come up with that? Well, first of all, in order to lead your, your mommy and daddy's house, you don't just disappear on them, right? What do you say? Mom, dad, I'm out. <laughs> what are you doing, son? I found myself a woman. And the woman, mom, dad, I'm, I'm gone. Well, what do you mean you're gone? God gave me a man. So in other words, both parents have to be notified, right? So in a sense, this marriage is not a private matter, but it's a public matter because both families are involved one way or another. I know now 21st century, we're just going to keep it secret, elope, go to the courthouse, and handy dandy, we're good to go, but it was never meant for that. And not only was it a public declaration, but it was also a declaration before God, because God is the one who is ultimately uniting you. It's God is the one that you're ultimately making the covenant to. And so marriage is never meant to be a private matter. It's always meant to be a public, a declaration uh, publicly before family, friends, and God. Now, I know the 21st century, we've taken the whole ceremony and uh, the pomp of it to the next level. That is ungodly, and that's why for some of us, we rebel against the public part of it and say, well, I'm not going to spend $100,000 just for people to come. I think that's a little insane too. But it doesn't take away that it should be a public declaration. It involves a declaration of intention, of redefining of obligations and relationships in a familial and social setting. So, in other words, what the Bible says, without a question, this verse serves as the foundation for understanding marriage and family. Monogamous, heterosexual marriage has always been the divine norm from the very beginning of creation. And that has been defiled, not in the 21st century, but you're going to see right off the bat it's been defiled in the book of Genesis. 
And I know for some of us, uh, old schoolers were like, I have the patriarchal view of marriage. Don't have that kind of view because those guys were awful humans. We'll get into that later. Let me move on. And then the final verse transitions us to chapter 3 where it says that they, the man and his wife were naked. They felt no shame. In other words, because they felt no shame, they've never experienced guilt. And we're going to talk more about that next week. So, so, so let's talk about our response here to this text. I'm going to talk to the men and then to, 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 the, to, to the women. Again, this message is not for people outside the church. It's inside the church. So, man, how, how do you view women? Do you view them as special creations of God? Do you view them as gifts to help you fulfill the mandate that God has given you? Do you view them as a person who possesses dignity and worth, not based on their appearance or based on their ability, but on the fact that God has handcrafted them into his image and to his likeness? Because let me tell you this, how you view women impacts how you treat women. And what caused gender confusion is how we viewed women that impacts how we treated women. Now the women, how do you view men? Do you too view them as special creations of God? Do you view them as gifts from God to lead you in fulfilling the the mandate of procreating and ruling over God's creation? Do you view them as as a person who possesses dignity and worth, not based on their appearance or their ability, but the fact that God has handcrafted them, and even though he used dirt, he kissed them with the kiss of life as he breathed life into their nostrils, something he didn't do to you, but he did to man. Because how you view men impacts how you treat men. All of us are guilty, and all of us, because we've been so shaped by our culture, whether we want to admit it or not, have somewhat of a gender confusion in our paradigm. As much as we want to point fingers to a certain political party or to a certain group, the reality of it is all of us are guilty in some way or another when it comes to gender confusion. And I do believe the best way to combat gender confusion is not an election. I think by now we're realizing it's not going to look good. But the best way to combat gender confusion is through modeling what biblical manhood and woman looks like. By modeling it, we're training who? We're training our offspring. We're training our children, our sons and our daughters of what it means to become a godly man and a godly woman. We're training our little boys of what it looks like to view women correctly and and treat women with dignity and respect. Like what's happened to the days when a woman enters to the room and the man rises? What happens to the days when a woman enters to the room, the man holds the door for the woman? 
Oh, those are old school days. No. It shows us how we view women. How we treat women. And the only way your boy is going to learn that is he's definitely not going to see it at school. He's definitely not going to see it in video games. He's definitely not going to see it on social media or on TV. He's going to see the opposite, which means you have to work extra hard and model to them what that looks like. Do you know why people don't want to get married anymore? Do you know why people have such a low view of marriage? Because most of the time, they themselves come from a dysfunctional family, and they promise themselves, I am never going to be like this. You, you know why there's, there's, there's abuse in families? Well, why men are, are abusing their women, and, and women are, in, in a sense, like constantly belittling their husbands? Because that's what they saw and they said, I saw my mom being abused and I'm never going to be like that. So I'm going to do the opposite and constantly belittle them and show them that I'm my own person. Like this is what sin does. It takes God's good creation, it corrupts everything. And it twists us. And it changes how we look at things. And then we argue among one another and say, well, that's your opinion. I, I don't know. I think I've done a pretty decent job saying, look at what God has established. Look at what God has said. That's why my message is not for somebody outside the church. It's somebody inside the church because I think if you're here and you're a Christian, you believe that the Bible is God's word and what God says is good. And God is saying these things and showing these things. So which means we have to accept these things and to live out these things and to model to the world, what a godly man, what a godly woman looks like. And the way we start modeling it, it starts with how we view them. Let our view shape how we treat the opposite gender. And now I need to point you to Christ. For men, look at Christ as the ultimate man. In Ephesians, he says that he loved his bride, a.k.a. the church, so much that he did what? He laid down his life for her. And even though we're part of the church, and let's just be honest, we're not the best bride. What is he committed to doing? He is committed, this is Ephesians, he's committed in washing her and perfecting her with the word. So what does that mean for you to do as you are looking to Christ, as you are following Christ, you're laying down your life for your bride, you're laying down your life for your woman. If you're not married, you lay down your life for other women and you're committed and treating them with such respect and such dignity that you beautify them, not objectify them, by beautifying them, by washing them with God's word and recognizing the gift that they've been given to, to us. And for women, how do you treat your man? He certainly is not Christ, but you ultimately look to Christ, who's the ultimate man and who's the ultimate husband. And you're trusting Christ to perfect your husband as he is perfecting you. So in a sense, both of us have to view Christ and look to him. It is so easy in our, in our marriage or in our relationships 
to beat one another up of our shortcomings or to say, I'll only do if you do. But when we stop focusing on our spouse and we ultimately look to Christ and how he treated us, it impacts how we treat one another. And this is the hope that we have. Yes, sin has caused gender confusion. Yes, we find ourselves living in a mess of a culture. But this is not new. Because the seed of the woman has come, and the seed has crushed the head of the serpent, and he said it is finished. And he has already begun his recreation work, and that recreation work has already begun in you because you're no longer described as an old creation, but a new creation, which means in that new creation work, you can start to reclaim and to model what a biblical godly man looks like and what a biblical godly woman looks like. We still have hope. And as we produce godly offspring, We can model it so that culture will look at it and see God's beautiful design for the man, for the woman, and for the family. Let me pray for us. Lord, forgive us in taking your creation, your special creation of man and woman, and Lord, either objectifying it, using it, abusing it, mistreating it, and not cherishing it for what it is. Forgive us of taking the covenant of marriage that you have ordained, that you've given to us as a gift, and we've abused it. We've redefined it to fit our licentious lifestyles. Lord, forgive us for our self-righteousness as we look at the world and we think the world has lost its mind, and yet we do the very same thing behind closed doors. Lord, help us to repent Help us to turn away from our sin and turn to you. Lord, I do pray, Holy Spirit, can you pierce each and every one of our hearts and convict us and re- really reveal truth of how we view each other, how, we view, how men view women and how women view men. And as you convict us, can you help us to see the opposite gender from a biblical perspective, from your perspective? And can that view change how we live and how we treat the opposite gender? Can you help us to model to our children what it means to be a godly man, a loving husband, a loving father? Can you help us, can you help the women to model to their children what it means to be a godly wife and a godly mother? And for those that are not married, Lord, can you start training in their hearts and how they view the opposite gender to see them as gifts and to treat them with dignity and respect. And Lord, as we look at our distinctions of roles, can you help us as men to faithfully lead the women in our lives? Can you help the women to to submit to the men as they're ultimately submitting to you? And can you help both of us to submit to your leadership? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.